We should have recorded all that. What's it, bitch? Shouldn't we do? Do 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 the music sometimes. I was going to say you go to bed, but you just ignore us. Shut up. Yes. This is why I wanted to, to wait until everyone had gone to bed before we recorded this week. You know, this was what? pre-credit sequence. This briefing is from file A56-7W. Classified top secret subject is... H's Comics. Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. To another all new, all action, all singing Hake It's Comics. Lots of singing. Lots of singing. I am Michael Leyland, and he is, of course, Andrew Leyland. And today we'll be covering another favourite new DC title of ours. Well, mine. Some say it's a companion piece to Swamp Thing. Others, who are wrong, say it stands perfectly on its own. But all we know is, it's called Animal Man. <laughs> I'm very good. Yeah. Very top gear. I'm very impressed. But first, we must read all of your lovely, lovely emails. Yes, we must. Lots of lovely emails this week. Well, Always nice to receive long lots ones. of lovely emails. Uh, no, only one really long one mm-hmm. this week. There's not, um, there's not lots of really long ones. Uh, first of all, once again, we're going to let it be known. Old episodes are up on the Two True Freaks feed. As we record this, three episodes are up. As you hear this, five episodes will be up. If you aren't listening to them, why not? They're there for your delectation and delight. Chris and Scott have put them up there to be archived forever. So that when the world finally succumbs to nuclear war, our pearls of wisdom will be what survives into the future. When that guy's glasses smash and he can't read all those books, he can listen to us. Time enough at last. Mm. It's very true. So, be gone. Go download old episodes. Come back, listen to new ones. We'll be right here, won't we? Yes. I'm always around, Lois. Uh, our first email, speaking of which, is from the mighty Scott H. Gardner. Hello, Scott. Scott Dog. Uh, the email is entitled, I wouldn't starve your children. Well, I don't know that you wouldn't. I have no proof of that. <laughs> um, howdy, cousins. Hello, Scott. Do you want to say hello to Scott, Anya? It would make his day. Hello, Scott. There you go. You've just made his heart melt. Congrats on finally uncovering one of the great mysteries of our time. Namely, just what the blazes is Scott H. Gardner's middle name anyway. Yes, it is indeed, as Michael said. Howdy. 100 points to Hufflepuff. (laughs) Do you want to mean Hufflepuff? I do. Okay, fine. The the one team that doesn't get its own hoodies. Ah, right. Okay, so it actually isn't, but it is one hell of a lot better than what my mother really chose. I'd like to think I would have been too cute to outright hate as an infant, but apparently that works so, as no loving human being would purposely burden a child with such a god-awful epithet. Anyway, howdy works for me. So you notice he's not actually telling yeah. us what it is. <laughs> he's like Inspector Morse. 
isn't he? Mm. Well, like, we never learned Inspector Morse's first name all the way through the show until the last ever episode when we learned that it was Endeavour. Endeavour Morse. Endeavour Morse, I guess. Okay. You can see why he kept it quiet, can't you? Yep. Sorry I haven't kept up a weekly letters pace, <clears throat> but you know how it is. And come on, it's not like you've been flooding the back to the bins inbox either, am I right? Email us already, if for no other reason than the shut Paul up. I've emailed back to the bins twice this week, Mr Gardner. <laughs> Unlike the mails I last sent you, maybe these ones will get read on the air. Oh! I've already emailed him back that, he knew that was coming. I was generally touched that the simple sound of my voice in the Epcot fireworks videos I posted to Facebook made Michael all weepy. Aw, I miss you guys too. In fact, I'm not sure if I've already told you this or not, but Logan and I revisited Universal Studios Islands of Adventure not long after you guys left, and while we had a good time and all, something was missing. To illustrate what I myself was privately thinking the whole day, at one point Logan let out the longest, deepest, most heartfelt and heartbreaking sigh you've ever heard from a child. What's wrong, buddy? I asked. I miss the Leylands, he answered. Me too, guys. Me too. Oh, and Anya very nearly just choked on her drink there, didn't you? You were all you were torn up by that, weren't you? We miss you too, Scott. I'm, I'm not sure it was torn up just from the look on her face. No, she's she's quite happy to have been mentioned, aren't you? Oh yeah, as long as she's mentioned, that's that's okay. that all she's bothered about. Yeah, okay, fair enough. We did. We had a lovely time with Scott, didn't we? Yes. We had a great time. Which makes what I have to say next even harder. I wouldn't starve your kids, Andy. You might have thought you'd covered yourself in that New Frontier episode, and I'm too deaf or inattentive to have caught if I clearly heard you say you've been downloading your Spider-Man viewing material. The hell, dude? What are you trying to do? Case of escape your notice, my boss owns those videos. He don't get paid, I don't get paid. Know what I'm saying? Food right out of my kids' mouths, man. Jeez, thanks a lot. I don't know what he's on about, though. I don't know what he's on about. Because we've talked a lot about the Spider-Man 90s TV show, and I've got the DVDs of those. Your mum bought me those for Christmas. So, I'm at a loss. Ones? The 70s ones? Yeah, but we downloaded them ages ago. On the crap. But yes, but they're not available commercially, so you've no, no. other way of getting those. So I don't know what you're referring to, though. But I'm no. sure Two True Freaks did an entire episode about how downloading is wonderful. I think Scott needs some editor's notes. <laughs> Maybe it is his ears. Yeah. Possible. Incidentally, I'd be delighted to send you Amazon links to those videos if you're having trouble finding the smiley face. Yes, because Amazon have a link on the 2 Trifix web page, and if you go through it, you, when you buy stuff, they get cut. We mentioned that last week, didn't we? We did. I buy everything through their link. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Also, from the aforementioned New Frontier episode, I feel I need to defend the man-wolf. I don't recall us saying negative things about the man-wolf. Isn't he a Marvel character? Yeah. Isn't this like when everyone wrote in to defend the shadow? Yeah. I didn't actually say I didn't like the shadow. I actually quite liked the film. Yeah. There just wasn't a lot of shadow in it. Awful lot of the before you get to the shadow. In many ways. I love this character. I quite like the man-wolf as well. When I was a kid living in the sprawling metropolis of Carthage, New York, we lived across the street from the paper mill where my mother worked, and I used to get tons of old comics from there, either by sneaking under the fence and absconding with them, or by having my mum bring home big boxes full of them. One of the rarer comics I ever obtained this way, bruh, because it still had a cover on it, was an issue of Creatures on the Prowl. COTP was an obscure horror title I've forgotten today, but no worthy for both some early, early, and in my opinion, awesome George Perez artwork and some damn good stories featuring JJJ's astronaut turned werewolf son. 
This was my introduction to the character of Manwolf. I eventually tracked down all of his appearances in that title and they were a lot of fun and served as my touchstone to this character along with some appearances in the low 100s issues of Amazing Spider-Man, at least one of which got the book and record treatment. I would say at least one of those issues was done by Byrne, but I'm too lazy to double check at the moment. Yes, you're right, one of them was by Byrne. My initial discovery of Manwolf came just in time for me to see him pop up on the cover of Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Number 3, where, if memory serves, he was finally cured of his affliction thanks to Peter and the assistance of Kurt Connors. If he's ever appeared as Manwolf since, I'm either unaware or have completely forgotten it. Why in the world I didn't buy the action figure? There was an action figure of Manwolf when I had the chance. It's something I still kick myself over. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Anyway, I can't tell you exactly why I love this guy so much, but I do. So there, somebody had to stick up for him. Well, I'm, I'm sure he appreciates you sticking up for him, but again, I don't recall us slagging him off. Yeah. Is this one of those, we've done the show, the show's gone up, we've completely forgotten what we said in it? Might have been. It's entirely possible, Scott. We're not doubting what you say. We just don't remember. <laughs> we're shocking, aren't we? We are. We're appallingly bad at this. You think we're just... because we're two weeks in advance. It is that, but if we don't keep going two weeks in advance, we don't keep up a nice rule of episodes, given that one of us hasn't finished editing next week's episode yet. And then when it goes up next week. <laughs> so you're back to time. Yeah, but you're doing this one as well. I'll have two weeks for this. Alright, fair enough. Michael, you absolutely made my day with your opinions on the killing joke and your story about the kids in your school. You're welcome. Welcome to my world, friend. I've been dealing with that crap since the day that story came out. I simply do not get it. What's the big honking deal with that story? And this from someone who considered himself an Alan Moore fan. A fur weather fan, admittedly, but a fan nonetheless. More on more shortly. Not only don't I consider this the be-all, end-all Batman story, I don't even consider it to be a particularly good Batman story. It pains me to say so, but it's true. I think it's way off base for the character. Moore does in this story exactly what your dad was brilliantly railing about. He waltzes in, messes everything up, then waltzes back out leaving Batman to yuck it up with his mortal enemy over a lame gag at the end of the story. What the? Are people like this story? No, actually, they love it. A lot. Every time there is somebody publishes a best of Batman list, this damn thing is on it. And I'm completely mystified. How this is considered a bat classic is honestly beyond me. So when does Batman find the Joker's antics the least bit amusing? Especially in this story. He crippled Batgirl for Pete's sake. Ugh. Uh, yeah, I'm total, total agreement with that. If we ever do top ten favourite Batman stories like we did with Spider-Man. That's not on there. That's not going to be on there. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would probably wager... Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One wouldn't be on my top ten favourite Batman stories either. Maybe Year One if I was in, oh, if I was feeling generous. But I've got a ton of Batman stories that I think are better than that. Yeah. In fact, we should do that for his seventy-fifth birthday next year, shouldn't we? Okay. Or is this birth Superman's birthday next year, isn't it? Is it? Batman's is the year after. Well, we can do top ten favourite Superman. Yeah, because you could do ten Batman stories, couldn't you? Okay. Whereas with the Spider-Man one, I carried that load really, didn't I? Ten Superman stories? Well, that's what we'll do Superman and we'll do Batman. Scott's email continues. One day. On the subject of Alan Moore, yeah, I do go off on tangents during the emails, don't I? I do apologise. First, allow me to preface all my statements by saying that while I do not consider myself a fan, I am also, as has been said before, a fair weather fan at best. I do not think he's the be-all end-all of comics. I do not think he's the best there's ever been. I do not think Watchmen is the best the medium has ever seen. In fact, I don't even think it's a particularly good story. In my view, V for Vendetta is his crowning achievement. That one is worth crowing about, but that's just my opinion. Yes! Yes! Alan, what have I always said about Alan Moore? 
Viva Vendetta is better. Viva Vendetta is Bendetta. the best thing. Vendetta. It's like when Bendis wrote it, he called it Viva Vendetta. And everyone just sat around talking. Yeah, everyone just sat around talking for 12 issues. <laughs> no, I've long said Viva Vendetta is the best thing Alan Moore's ever done. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much. Glad you've got my back on that one. Because everyone kind of looks at you as if you're, you're a bit strange when you say stuff like well, that. I, I like people who read comics. Because everyone at my school only thinks Viva Vendetta is a film. And <sighs> Watchmen. Yeah. Despite it saying at the front, based on the graphic oh, no. novel. They, they all own the graphic novels of that. Oh, do they? Which they bump. They what? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it means they like it very much. Oh. Is this some youth slang that I'm yeah, aware yeah, of? Yeah. Moving swiftly on. But where I will defend more... I don't think he walks on water, and there is probably at this point at least as many stories of his that I don't personally care for or are outright can't stand as like or even love. But what I will defend more just a tad is that both in that I think you definitely miss something when you're saying he's never come into title, stayed a while and made his bones in the regular month-in, month-out format. I give you Exhibit A, Saga of the Swamp Thing. Couple of people's pulled us up over this. Yeah. And the sad thing is, we both knew this, didn't we? We did. So why did we not say that in the show? Why did we not say, other than Swamp Thing? Because I've not read it, so it skipped my mind. Did it? And yeah, it just completely sailed out of my mind as well. So everyone who's little, we do appreciate you emailing in and pointing out where we're wrong. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> we know that that does happen a lot. A lot. But we did know about it. Should we make a special edition show called Michael and Andrew Get Things Wrong? Michael and Andrew Say Sorry. Oh, yes. <laughs> Moore's run on that title, simply put, Scott's email continues, is incredible. Much like what Frank Miller did with Daredevil, Moore took a boot that was on the verge of cancellation, and rightly so because it sucked, and made it one of the most fondly remembered and best-selling titles of the 1980s. It was an absolute must-read in its day. Like we're seeing with The Walking Dead today, it was a title that totally transcended its genre and delivered solid, entertaining stories regardless of if you were into horror comics or not. I think that's basically telling us we should read Swamp Thing. I think so. Uh, yeah. All of them are in the library, Wigan. Uh, All five hardcovers. All of them are on your iPad. That's true as well. The other thing I'll half-heartedly defend is that I don't think that Moore is a totally pretentious that everyone seems to want to make him out to be. Now, he may well have succumbed a bit to his own hype, but I think that's more or less understandable. Who wouldn't? The man has written some of the best-selling and most highly regarded modern classic comic stories of our time. Whether you agree with that assessment of his works or not, it's generally acknowledged that he's among the very best. I know that would go to my head. I can forgive him if it's gone to his just a bit, but see, that's the thing. I think it's only just a bit. I don't see him as being big-headed or overbearing about it, like, say, oh, Grant Morrison, for example, who thinks his poop don't stink and that he's free just to destroy any and everything he lays hands on to, and you better just love it or you're an idiot who can't understand the subtext. Honestly, I'm both a bit mystified and peeved by folks who worship at the altar of Morrison, yet give more nothing but grief. What's that all about? All the things they ascribe to Morrison, he's so talented, he's so deep, he's so metatextual, blah blah blah, are actually for the most part true about Moore. He actually is a good writer, most of the time, as opposed to a condescending nutjob who just swallows a handful of pills and scribbles off some incomprehensible nonsense based on whatever floats in front of his altered mind, then laughs all the way to the bank every time it sells gangbusters. I was going to say that at least with Moore I never got the feeling he was being deliberately dismissive or ignorant of the true essence, core and backstory of the characters he's tackled, but then I remembered the killing joke, which I think is exactly that, and I have to stop myself. I do feel Michael's pain, as I've said, I've dealt with that a long time, and when it comes to Superman, I'm still dealing with it today. Okay, let's take that, should we? Yeah. Um, you're, I didn't say anything about Alan Moore, in terms of person, because I personally yeah. try and stay away from personally insulting people. Well, I wasn't personally insulting No, 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 I no. I no. saying, your what opinion. he says and what he writes, yeah. like Warren Ellis, is very different. Yes, and your opinion is that he's a hypocritical dick, rather than a pretentious dick. A bit of both. Really? See, I don't get pretentious from it. 
I do get whenever I watch him being interviewed and in that Ditko thing he does come across as a bit snooty and aloof mm. but I do get there is an undercurrent of a sense of humour about himself well I saw the, the documentary about the making of DC and there was one bit which really made me want to throw the remote in the TV where he was doing some um, uh, he was up on stage talking to people pulling his beard I don't want people I can't remember what he said now Oh, that's not well, good for your argument he, 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 ended it, he ended it with Oh, I don't want people to such a such thing I just want people to think What's wrong with that? I, I want people to think uh, But the way I can't exactly I can't exactly argue this point now because I forgot what it was about. What mm. It was they were talking about Swamp Thing and everyone was saying, Oh he's so great, oh he's so fantastic, he's changed everything, oh and then he's like, Oh, I just want people to think. I'm not writing a comic for writing a comic, I'm writing a comic to make people think. See, I don't find anything inherently wrong with writing popcorn material that challenges people. I have no problem with that. Yeah. My problem with Alan Moore ultimately is that yes, he has changed comics. I don't think always for the better. No. And I think it's the same with Frank Miller and Batman specifically. He changed Batman forever. I don't think he necessarily changed Batman for the better by the time he was finished with it. I know that's a minority opinion. I know that every, there's lots of other people who think Frank Miller's work on Batman is the bee's knees. Same with Alan Moore. For me, there is no creative person ever in the history of creation who has got it right 100% of the time, in my opinion. Um, even Danny Boyle, who, whose work I love, made The Beach. Yeah. So... I, I enjoyed The Beach. Did you? Oh, I thought it was duller than dirt, which was unforgivable for Danny Boyle. Okay. Okay, yeah, maybe so maybe. are you going to say anything about what he says about Grant Morrison, then? No, 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 you, you, can, you can counterpoint. I don't have a counterpoint, really. I'll, I'll have to read it again and think and then... And then come back to it. Mm. See, the only thing I would take issue with that, though, is, again, when I've seen Morrison being interviewed, mm-hmm. he reminds me of every Scottish person I've ever met, in the sense that he's probably a really good laugh to go out and have a beer with. Probably. I've never got the impression that Morrison believes his own hype. Mm. Now, if you want to point me to an interview where this is so, then I would happily watch it I'm and change my opinion. But whenever I've read or watched an interview with him, he certainly seems to subscribe to altered states. Yeah. But I've never got the impression that he believes his own hype. Mm. There is very definitely this cult of Morrison, this cult of Moore, but but that's formed around them. I don't think that's their fault. Yeah. So we'll just have to agree to disagree about Maybe. the personalities of the people involved. Maybe one day Alan Moore will be able to write a story where someone doesn't get raped. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> And we'll agree, like I say, we'll agree to disagree on the personalities of the people whilst agreeing with what he's actually saying. Because we don't actually disagree with anything he said, though, apart from the Grant Morrison stuff. Whereas you're a big fan of Morrison stuff, which is fine. You've articulated on this show many times why you're a fan of Morrison stuff. I'm a fan of Grant Morrison as well as his work. Whereas... um... I can easily differentiate between the two. Yeah. There are certain people who think, say, the politics or whatever, I would probably not agree with. But I can enjoy their work. Yeah, and with Alan Moore, like I said, it's more of a person. I have read Alan Moore stories and enjoy them. But then I again go back and he said, oh, I'll, I, I don't like people writing stories about my characters, but I'm happily to do it with others. Well, see, that's where you're, you think he's hypocritical came from. Yeah, isn't it? All right, moving on. 
That said, I must say thank you to Andy for verbalising something I've long struggled to understand and put into words. The ill-defined feeling of an ease with the modern classic comic stories. From Dark Knight to Kingdom Come, nine times out of ten, these stories just don't click with me. For years I've struggled with the whys and the worthalls of this. Why do I not feel the same way about many of the stories that my fellow fans do? And I think Andy hit it right on the head. Anybody can write the last adventure of character X. And that is what a lot of these stories come down to, isn't it? And without consciously understanding it or being able to accurately express it, I've always been miffed when superstar writer X sails it, tells his big interpretation that completely misses the mark story, then rides off into the sunset to the applause and acclaim of all the fandom when my creative team have been there, in place, slaving away, seemingly unnoticed, sometimes for years to little or no acclaim at all. This makes me nuts, and it wasn't until hearing you say it in so many words that I finally understood exactly what was making me nuts, and why I don't get all gushy over the big ones. You made a great point in that the superstar who just sails in and upsets the apple cart hasn't earned the right to do so. I love that. Perfect assessment of the problem. Thank you very much. See, a lot of them do fall into that category. Kingdom Come is another one. For me, Kingdom Come wasn't as good as Marvel's. Okay. Because Marvel's didn't attempt to do that. Right. Marvel's was Kurt Busiek on a bash love letter yeah. to Marvel and the Marvel Universe in the same way that New Frontier was Darwin Cook's love letter to the DC Universe. Yeah. Neither one of those stories came in, told the last Superman story and got the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, well, that, it took me a few times to read uh, Kingdom Come and actually understand and enjoy it. Hmm. The first time I read it was Your Prestiges when I was little. Yeah, I think you read them when you were about ten, didn't you? Yeah. You weren't very old. And the one I got the absolute last year and I read it and I was like ah right I get this now see I've only read Kingdom Come once and I wasn't reading it as it was the last Superman story I was reading it as though the middle Mm. because it's not the end of Superman more of it's him at the end of his life though isn't it if memory serves Um, he's older yeah but uh, I don't I wouldn't say it's see I've only read it once because I wasn't overly impressed with it fair enough (laughs) so I do need I would like to read Kingdom Come again I am, Scott continues, at heart a creature of habits. I like my regular monthly adventures, and these lauded stories, generally speaking, almost always fail to capture the feeling of whatever given character for me. Miller's Batman in Dark Knight Returns was a far cry from the Batman appearing in the Bat books at the same time. Thus, I wasn't all that enamoured of that series. And when Batman comics eventually mutated to be more in line with that interpretation of the character and Arkham Asylum and Killing Joke, that's when they started to lose me. Same thing happened recently with Superman. All the stories that have garnered all the big attention and plaudits have been, again, generally speaking, stories that I looked at and said, have you a-holes ever even read a Superman story before? And now, like Batman, 20 years ago, those accolades of stories that do not accurately fret the month-to-month adventures of Superman have influenced editorial decisions to see the character in that direction. Ugh. Anyway, that was a long-winded way of saying thanks, you've solved a mystery for me, which I appreciate. Speaking of which, you said that you understand why the killing joke is held in high esteem. Could you explain it to me? Because I do not. Never have. Uh, the killing joke is held in high esteem, one, because it's Alan Moore. So that instantly gives that it a cachet. Sort of the, yeah. Secondly, it's Brian Bolland yeah. working on sequential art, which he hasn't done for quite a long time. Thirdly, it is a story that radically changes Batman's status quo. Yeah. Now, these are all the reasons that we don't like it that much. But well, for, except for reason two. Yeah, no, no, I'm not talking about that. The last one, primarily, I'm yeah. talking about. That is the one that I think that sells it primarily to both comics readers and non-comics readers because it's such a radical change to the status quo for people who are always complaining that they want things to change and grow 
and evolve. And secondly, for a, a standard reader who's never read another Batman story, they come in, they don't have that prior knowledge of Barbara Gordon and Batgirl, and they read it, and it's quite decent. As a standalone story, The Killing Joke is not awful by any means. It's, it's gorgeous flaws. to look at. It still has its flaws, which you've pointed out before, particularly the ending, which yeah. Scott pointed out as well. But as somebody who watches Batman or Batman Returns or Batman Begins or whatever, and they go and buy The Killing Joke, you can see why they would enjoy that story. Mm-hmm because it's the very dark, nihilistic version of Batman that they understand. And you can read that and not read any other Batman story ever again, but profess that you've read the comics and pretend you know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. For me, it's comics are, Mike Bailey has said, the second act. Whereas you can argue that following that story, Batman's relationship with the Joker and Commissioner Gordon's relationship with the Joker would never be the same again. And yet, by the very nature of serialised fiction, it has to be. Yeah. Following that, there is no way in hell you're not convincing me that Gordon would push for him to get the electric chair. Mm-hmm. And he's a well-respected politician and law officer in that town. He could easily make us play that, look, he did this. There was no insanity involved. He did this deliberately. Yeah. He deliberately had a plan in this story, and his plan was to take an ordinary person and push them to the brink of insanity to prove that it could be done. The Joker in that story is not insane. No. And that's my point. Gordon would then take that evidence to, well, I don't know whether Gotham City has a death penalty, but certainly Probably. it's got that many nut jobs that you'd think it would, yeah. and he would get him the electric chair at that point. Whether Batman agreed with what he was doing or not, if certainly if well, I was... even then, if, if you're arguing about Commissioner Gordon, even Batman would. Yeah, because of what he's done. And I think you can argue that a good lawyer could argue a case in that story that the Joker's actions were premeditated and not the actions of an insane man, yeah. and therefore get him the chair. And then it doesn't fit into continuity. Yes, but, cause exactly. Because he, he goes from all, ah, ha, 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 that joke is well funny. <laughs> and then, th- there's an issue later on. Where um, he's all like, I hate the Joker. Arr, he killed, but hurt Barbara. Yeah, it's like, it doesn't fit into continuity, and, and yet they sandwiched it into continuity. There's a bit in Hush, which I'm fine with reading it, but I just thought of just then where um, Joker seemingly shoots that guy who's Bruce's friend's childhood friend. Oh yeah, yeah, and and Batman, Tommy. Yeah, and then Batman beats the crap out of him until until he almost dies, and he's having flashbacks to when he shot Barbara. Okay. And then Commissioner Gordon stops him. Right. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. So I'm thinking with all that with Barbara, surely Commissioner Gordon. Yeah, but Gordon he's stopping Commissioner. He's stopping Batman from becoming a murderer. Yeah. Which is a different thing. Whereas with the Killing Joke, he could go through channels and get the Joker put down. Yeah. And he would be right to do so. Hmm. That's my that's my argument for why I understand why people like the Killing Joke. I'm not saying I support them. And I, I don't think The Killing Joke is god-awful. This is another thing. Alan Moore is too good of a writer for it to be awful. It's just not my cup of tea. Yeah. Basically. Love your mini rants about costumes and why they're important. We reach, brother. New Frontier 3. Stick it to the man, you say? Really? Come on, guys. He's got to be, what, 90-something these days? And he's kind of frail. And if it weren't for him, we wouldn't have Spider-Man or the Hulk or the Avengers. Can we stick it to someone else for a change? I'm just saying. We didn't mean Stan. <laughs> I wouldn't stick it to Stan. I wanted to live forever. Really? Or die trying. Have you seen what he's writing these days? I, I ignore what he's writing these <laughs> days. Flashpoint. 
Only about halfway through the episode, as this will likely be a novel, but it's a slow work day. So I thought I'd go ahead and dash off these thoughts off now. Oh, Michael's very own episode. I feel like a proud uncle. They grow up so fast, don't they? Yes, yes, they do. And a very good job you did with it, too. Thank you. I thought. What's Bailey's beef with Devon Grace? Thank you for defending her with that awesome Batman story that features the Aquaman guest shot. I covered that story ages ago, Back to the Bins. Ooh. The problem with bloody Back to the Bins. So many of them. No, 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 no. Because it's random comics, they never actually put in the write-ups what they've covered this week so to maintain the surprise of the show, which is fine, I get that. But when he says something like that, and you're like, I want to go back and find that one, because I mustn't have ever listened to it, or if I have listened to it, I've forgotten that he picked it, which is possible. I love that story. To me, it was a rare example of a modern-day writer truly getting the character. The shots in that story of the Batman silently wandering empty, dark, lonely Wayne Manor in the middle of the night really brought home what it would really like to be this poor guy. How isolated he's made himself. It's almost heartbreaking and a great story to point to as an illustration of how his parents probably wouldn't be too happy with the course of his life. It's a favourite of mine. I wonder if Bailey's ever read it. Well, Devin Grayson's is another one who seems to polarise people. I enjoyed most of her writing on Gotham what was that book called Gotham Knights was that the bat title she wrote for a while it's a Nightwing stuff where Nightwing is semi-raped and her belief that that. Dick Grayson could be gay and that kind of this is a writer imprinting her personality on the character like we've said before I have no problem with gay characters in comics but I resent it when that becomes the defining characteristic. You're doing an Alan Scott. Yeah, basically. So, if you're going to do a gay character, do what Byrne did with Northstar, which I think is a textbook way of handling a gay character, in that he was introduced... As a gay and character? No, he was introduced as an arrogant son of a bitch who basically worshipped his sister, but everyone else could go hang. But because his sister had a mental disorder, he was willing to be in Alpha Flight to help his sister, because his sister liked being in Alpha Flight. Okay. And it was later, when you read between the lines, you discovered that he was gay. So that at that point, the gayness is just another part of his character, Instead and of... not his defining yeah. trait. That's how you write a gay character. James Bond's defining characteristic isn't that he's a ramping, raging heterosexual, is it? It's an important part of his character, but it's not his defining part. They don't part. make a story out of it. Yeah, they don't make a big deal out of it. It's just, it's part of who he is. And that's what I think they should do when they write gay characters. It yeah. should just be a part of who they are. It shouldn't be smashing you in the face. No! Well, like... Oh, what? You just made a terrible joke. Did I? Yes. <laughs> it means so. Speaking of Michael Bailey, I thought you'd get a kick out of this. As you may or not know, Mike and I often have epic conversations before we get recording on any given show. Sometimes snippets of them make it into the episodes proper, but more often than that, they're just private back and forth that our adoring public never get to hear. A few nights ago, spurred by your recent coverage of such, I put a serious question to our mutual friend. Mike, is there something the matter with me or something? I just don't get New Frontier. We went on to have quite the conversation on this subject. Not sure if we ever reached any solid conclusions, but it was fun. Mike, like yourself, holds it in extremely high regard. Me? I don't get it. I'm not saying I don't like it. Please don't misunderstand me. But this is another one I really need someone to clue me in about. I've got it. I've read it. I don't get it. You are the only person who has emailed in with anything even remotely negative about New Frontier. Now, I get that you're saying you're not saying you don't like it. But everybody else has wrote in praise in what a fantastic series that is. And I'm completely on board with them. I think New Frontier is a phenomenal piece of work. I think it may be the single best piece of work DC has published in the past ten years. 
Um, we did two entire episodes about why we think it's great. Yeah. Um, if you don't pick songs of your song, as a wise man once said, you either get it or you don't. It's just one of those things. Keep them coming, and welcome to the Two True Pimps Network. Your pal, Raymond Luxury Yacht, pronounced Scott H. Gardner. <laughs> Your Two True Pimps seem to have caught on. I know. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. We did appreciate that. It always provokes great discussion, as evidenced by the fact we spent half an hour on your email. <laughs> Something other about Flashpoint. This is from Scott Gardner again. Okay. I know synopsis are a pain in the butt, but they do serve a necessary function, particularly when the listener is not familiar with the source material. Such is my case with Flashpoint. I haven't read it, so I'm relying solely on your description of it to follow the story. Two words of advice. Slow down. I'm having trouble following you. No need to race through it. I know you want to get onto the good part, the discussion, but if you lose your audience on the way, then the best talking points in the world kind of fall flat. Scott. Well, you did the synopsis for Flashpoint, didn't you? It. I, I do apologise. Do you think that's a valid criticism? Maybe. Because you're not fond of doing the synopses, are you? Yeah, I'm not fond of talking. I've rushed through it, so I don't know. Yeah, we'll do that. Okay, fair enough. Fair comment. Although Mike Bailey got in touch on Facebook and said, counterpoint, that he thought you did a fantastic job of it. He told me as well. So, each to their own, I suppose, is all we can say to that. Our well, next email. Maybe you shouldn't like Flashpipe. Oh. Our next email is called New Frontier. Hopefully this is someone else saying New Frontier is great. <laughs> or maybe somebody who doesn't like it. Okay. Our email is from Andrew Morton. Hello, Andrew. I love that he's got a little picture. So we know what he looks like. That's pretty cool. Huh? Hello, Andrew. Michael, hello, Andrew. I greatly enjoyed listening to your episode on New Frontier and decided to chime in with my thoughts. I've not read the book itself, and prior to your coverage, I'd only seen the animated film, also provided by our mutual friend Tor. It never occurred to me how apt the times it goes black and white are, so thanks to you, I can watch it with a little more appreciation. <laughs> so he's got the same copy we've got. <laughs> I understand that the movie makes the focus very much on Hal, but it was still disappointing by how much of Green Lantern we actually got. Also, I didn't think much of the writing for Superman or Wonder Woman, but the voice acting was very good. Conversely, I did like the character arc of Batman, but the voice did great a bit. The two highlights, though, were the stories of John and Flash. Both characters were well-treated, and the stories made some nice companion pieces to that of Hal Jordan. Sadly, the film did not spark my interest in seeking out the book it was based on, but your synopses and commentaries made me think twice, and so I should be on the lookout for it the next time I'm in town. Currently listening to your first Flashpoint episode and greatly enjoying it as always. Thanks again, Andrew Moore. P.S. Like Mr. Bailey, I too write these things with Andrew's cadence in my head. Maybe you should get Michael to read the emails and really mess with our heads. I don't think you'd like that, would you? <laughs> I'm fine letting you do it. Okie doke. Thank you, Andrew. We appreciate that. Our next email is from Chris Keith. Hello, Chris. It's nice to hear from him. He's got a picture as well. Oh, but that's a cuter one because it's, it's him holding a little girl. Right. And cuddling her. Mighty Leylands, Mighty Chris, how are you? Mighty. We are mighty. We are. Yes. Hear us roar. Can we be an Avenger now? We're too pretty to die. First off, I would like to thank you, on behalf of England, for a delightful Olympics so far. Go ahead, take the credit. Take it. I would like to petition your Prime Minister to change time zones, syncing the US and England. Why, you ask? So CNN, NBC, etc. would not feel the need to spoil every damned event with a text message telling me I was ahead of the replay time. Who wins the event? Sorry, still a little bitter about the men's 400 metre swimming. Oh, we're happy to take full credit for the Olympics, aren't we? Yeah. I've not watched any of it. The opening ceremony wasn't. Oh, yeah, the, the James Bond bit was awesome. Okay. Literally on His Majesty's Secret Service. The, the, the only bits of the Olympics I've seen was um, the girls' hockey. 
<laughs> I wonder why. I, I just watched it, the hockey. I just know. Happens to be watching the hockey. Yeah. And it happened to be the girls. Yes. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Okay, enough Olympics. Onto my comics. Born to Run. Thank you, Andy. Or Michael for using Bruce as the lead into the episode. Always a nice intro. Full credit to Michael. You very well. He edited the show. Now to do with me. You did all that one on your billy, didn't you? I did. Thomas Wayne. The most interesting thing about Thomas Wayne as Batman, at least to me, was the exploration of the way a father would react to the murder of his son versus a son reacting to the murder of his parents. Like Andy, I would have liked more of this character, as I wanted to delve deeper into the obvious motivations. It was an interesting take, and I liked that the man would risk everything to bring forth a reality where his son was alive. Kind of strange, though. Barry did the same thing, and look what happened. This time it worked. I guess it's all a question of perspective. That's a very interesting point, that, isn't it? Barry saving his mum... Yeah. is what messed everything up. Thomas saving his son is what put right what once went wrong. Very good. I like that. Yeah. I love it when somebody emails... We spend hours poring over this stuff for subtext and allegory and writing notes and then somebody just emails in with something blindingly brilliant. Uh, at least it wasn't as... Uh, <laughs> well, it was like, like Luke's. Yeah. <laughs> Which was so obvious neither of us got it. <laughs> oh, yes. Thanks, Luke. Eobard Thorne continues Chris's email. Okay, get this. I'm listening last night to the show and that real stupid name of Professor Zoom made me wrap my brain for about an hour after I got home from the gym. Why? Because in the back of my head I knew that someone else in comics had an almost equally stupid name. On a whim I pulled up Google on my trusty iPad and was greeted with Eobard Garrington. Who, you ask? When the Black Knight Dane Whitman was transported to the Crusades, he was transported into the body of and fought as Eobar Garrington. I don't recall if the name was referenced in the two-part in Avengers 225-226, but there you have it. Stupid names across two companies. Who remembers this stuff? We do, Chris. <laughs> we do. And we appreciate you remembering it on our behalf. Lastly, R.I.P. Dominic Santini. You will be missed. Yes. Very sad. Thank you, gentlemen, for all that you do, Chris Keith. P.S. Starting episode one of your golden oldies tonight. Is it appropriate to write in with comics on your classic episodes? <laughs> um, you feel free to call them classic episodes. We call them old. <laughs> um, yeah, feel free. Feel free to comment on the old ones if you want to. I'm listening back to them. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That first one was really hard going. Yeah. Again, I'm not being self, um, not self-pitying. What's the word I'm looking for? I'm not being self... Um, I'm putting myself down. You know what I mean. I've lost the ability to think. But the, that first one was hard work. The second one wasn't bad. The Batman one, we were getting more into a groove, though. But there's still work to be done in the editing. If I had the original footage, I would have made special editions. But I don't anymore. So thank you, Chris. Yes, feel free to email us in on the old episodes. That goes for anyone. If you want to email in on the old episodes, feel free. We'd be quite happy to read them on the air. Our next email is from... Luke Jackness. Yay! It wouldn't be an episode without an email from Luke. The subject heading is Flash, 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 Dun, 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 Flashpoint! Is that the Queen song? Dun, 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 Flash! It's hard, everybody does! Do, do, do. Or something like that. Have you ever danced with the Leylands in the pale moonlight? What? I asked that of all my prey. I just like the sound of it. That's Batman! Is it? Jack Nicholson in Batman. Okay. Yay, you got one. The subject of the email is a reference to the Japanese Super Sentai show, Choshenshai Flashman, pronounced Choshinsei. He tells me that after I've read yeah. it. <laughs> hey, boys! Hey, Luke. Just got finished listening 
to the Flashpoint episode, I wanted to give some thoughts. First off, welcome to the Two True Freaks podcast network. As a fellow TTFer, let me be first to say welcome aboard and make sure you take precautions when you spend time with Signor De Monzo's associates. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, the associates have already been round. I don't appreciate the Chinese hookers, to be honest with you. Although, you know, the, the weed was... That was much I don't seem to be enjoying them. Yeah, well, Adam always enjoys them. Now then, Flashpoint. I ended up reading the first issue because my brother got a free copy from his buddy who was a creator for DC Comics, Franco Aurelian of Tiny Titans and Superman Family Adventures. Those are so cool. Uh, are they? Yeah. Are they really good? That's actually quite cool. Then he knows some people for DC. I enjoyed the first issue but did not get any more of the series because, unlike Andy, I didn't see the point of reading an alternate reality take. I felt vindicated in my decision when the new 52 reboot was announced as I didn't see much use in reading an alternate reality story that restarted the universe. After all, what difference would it make? These weren't the real characters after all, right? After listening to your episode, I've decided to grab the collected edition. There you go. Job done. DC always money. I generally like Jeff Johns, especially on any of the Flashes. My first work of his I read was on his run of the Wally West Flash. So a Flash-centric event book would probably have earned my money. Well, now it will. Just in a different format, I suppose. Some notes. Andy, excellent use of cutting in Stranger in a Strange Land during the synopsis of the first issue. No brave new world indeed. Lost in this place and leave no trace is also quite fitting. Again... Michael, not me. Oh, Michael, I did actually think you included some Iron Maiden. Yeah. Was was pretty boss. I I wholeheartedly approved of that. I don't believe it is included in the hardcover, continues Luke, but Flash 8, a story entitled Reverse Flash Rebirth, is one that really sets the stage for Flashpoint in my mind, or at least helps to swerve the reader into thinking Professor Zoom is the big bad. It's a rogues profile issue which features the Professor telling us his origin. The thing is, it keeps changing. Thorne literally rewrites his history as the issue unfolds. For instance, he tells us about his younger brother who monopolised his parents' attention and time and distracted him from his studies. Then we see a blurred image of Reverse Flash grab his brother from behind. Dialogue is mirror flipped for a panel and is removed from time. And then he tells us, I was an only child. He does this repeatedly. Jones not only strongly reinforces Reverse Flash's ability to rewrite the main time stream, already established in Flash Rebirth, but also his willingness to meddle with the time stream to make things more to his liking. The last line of the issue is, let's go through Barry Allen's life. Reading that, it seems like a pretty obvious setup, huh? Too obvious, clearly. Have you read that one? No. Have I read that one? It's not in the hardware. Is it in Destinedly Death of the Road? It must be. Right. Also interesting is that John's version of Professor Zoom, Eobard Thorne, has powers over time itself. The modern Zoom, Hunter Zolomon, that battles the Wally West Flash, actually derived his powers from time itself. He could achieve super speed not through the speed force, but instead through bending the time stream locally around himself. Hence, Wally could not steal his speed like he could those powered by the speed force, and had to find a different way to defeat him. Good stuff from the early 2000s. Yeah, I've got all the Wades. Wades? Jeff Johns' Flash run. On Wally West. All of it, no? Yes. I've not read it yet. Because okay. I, I stopped the Flash at issue 100 to read something else. Because yeah. I'd read 100 issues of the Flash. Felt yeah. time to have a break. Another odd note, the Geopulse device that the Atlanteans use is actually Geoforce. Ooh. Aquaman trapped him in the machine and used his powers to sink Western Europe into the sea. I do not like this at all, because frankly, Geoforce's power levels, especially as depicted in the latter stages of the last Outsider series, are way beyond Aquaman's. And I'm not an Aquaman hater. I think he's as tough as they come. But Geoforce went toe-to-toe with the Olympian and fought to a stalemate. He's a tough cookie. Ironic that his half-sister Terra was on the other side of the war being over with the Amazons. As to the Amazons invading the East End, sorry, but I think the blokes would probably love them big Amazon gals and try to buy them a pint and ask if they wanted to watch the Irons play Tottenham on the telly. Assuming, of course, that West Ham was not relegated down to the Champions League at that point. 
Anyway, keep up the great work. You can't hear. Wait to hear your guys' take on the new 52. Luke, I love it when Americans know more about football than us. Dad, <laughs> Thanks, Luke. Always appreciate it. Luke does Earth Destruction Directive, which is also over on the Two True Things Network. Feel free to pop by and download forthwith. Our final email tonight is from Kenneth Laster again. Hello, Kenneth. Hey, Leylands. The subject heading is an email about emails. I love how my tagline created an excellent argument about Mr. Drake. I think although they obviously pulled that he was never Robin out of their bums, but I think what editorial means is that all the stuff he did as Robin was under the initial title of Red Robin, which you have to give him credit. Makes sense because he took the role immediately after Jason's death. I had a very similar idea to what Andrew had about Batman and Robin and the Dark Knight, and I thought about the start of a DC title called Young Justice. Now hear me out. A book with an unnamed group of young superheroes that takes place in a five-year period, showing only the adventures of the unnamed group of teen heroes, but an insight on the young, budding DC universe. So basically, DC editorials should take their advice from a 14-year-old kid and put an awesome writer and artist to make fans happy. Since I'm not even done listening to the emails, this most likely will not be the last email for the day. Kevin Laser, Bizarro Boy Wonder. Laser. He must have changed his name, though. <laughs> <laughs> he misspelt his name. I just yeah. thought Kenneth Laser was a great name. Mm. But alas, Kenneth... like an 80s science fiction it series. It does, show. yeah. Kenneth Laser. Laser Blazer. Mm. That's the show's name. Okay. Unfortunately, Kenneth did not email us with another email before the deadline for the show. So we'll take a quick break and be right back. On May 30th, 2011... DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. No. No. That's not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It it the it flame flames flames on the side of my face, breathing breath heaving breaths heaving. But then the books actually hit, and opinions. He likes it. He likes it. Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right, or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The New 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com. Uh, okay, and we're back. 
Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Uh, and once again, I hand the con over to Mighty Michael. Well, this week, we're doing Animal Man. Yes. The only Animal Man stories I've ever read, though. Well, take a guess. Oh, um... There was an acclaimed run by, um... Jamie Delano. That was acclaimed. Uh, okay. Uh, Pete Milligan did it for a bit. That was a miniseries, I think. Um, oh, who's the other guy? The bald Scottish guy. What's his name? Grant Morrison. He did it for a bit, didn't he? He did, yes. You read that one, have you? I read that one. I'm shocked. I really liked it. I'm shocked and surprised. (laughs) See, I liked his approach to the character and what he did with the story and to himself. Yes. It, It was a family title. Not a family title, but a title based on a family. Yes. Yeah. And I'd never read any more Animal Man after that. I'd heard Janie Delama made Buddy Eat a Horse, which kind of threw me off reading any of his room, because I'd been reading about a vegetarian animal rights activist. But years ago, I read 52, and he was in that too, and also written by Morrison, but I was 10 at the time, and I'd ne- never heard of Animal Man or Grant Morrison, so the character didn't appeal to me, other than wondering how he could have possibly thought his wife wouldn't have, would be alright with him bringing a young, scantily clad woman to stay at his house. <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah. I've only ever read Grant Morrison's run He was animal. trapped in space before 52, yeah. and in 52, um, well, he was trapped with Adam Strange and uh, Starfire. Right. And he com- uh, comes back home to Earth and goes, Hey, Starfire, do you fancy staying at my house since you don't have anywhere to live? And she's all, okay. And his wife's all, grrr. Mm-hmm. He invited Starfire to stay. Yeah. Starfire. Yeah. All bronze and lots of yeah. her and big yeah. eyes. Yeah. Starfire. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I've only read the Alan. The, I read... No, that's not true, actually. I read Jamie Delano's run when it became a Vertigo title. Because I was in my I Will Read Everything Vertigo phase <laughs> because I was a pretentious 20-year-old at the time. Were you? Yeah, I've grown out of that. Oh, okay. And now mock those people mercilessly <laughs> because I used to be one. So I read that, and but Grant Morrison's work on Alan Manoir was exceptionally good. Mm. I liked it immensely. And we did cover it. Not really. Okay. We covered an issue of it, didn't we? We did, yeah. Back in the day. Back in the day. So look for that episode to appear on the Two True Freaks feed in about a year. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. So then the reboot happened, and whilst a lot of people were still against it, it did a great deal of good for long-forgotten characters and creative teams. Even Andrew Bennett and Amethyst Princess of Gemworld have their own books now. Yeah, see, I will give them credit for throwing a lot of stuff out there and seeing what sticks. Mm-hmm. One character that came back into the ring was Animal Man, and I wasn't really bothered about reading it. And then I saw the creative team, and it was two blokes I'd never heard of before. And so that, that made it even less interesting yeah. to you. <laughs> but thanks to Traveling Man's Buy 5 Get 1 Free deal I mentioned last week, the book was soon in my hands and I thought it was pretty gnarly. And similar takes on the character that I'd read about in Morrison's run. Shut gnarly. up! Shut up! Gnarly dude. I tried to I tried to throw my I will read everything vertigo fit, uh, put into the... Gnarly. <laughs> yes. Similar take on the character that I read about in Morrison's run, which was a big appeal. And it had tones of horror and the oh-so-wacky type of stuff I'm into. So, issue one of Animal Man, The Hunt Part 1, Warning from the Red, was written by Jeff Lemire, penciled by Travel Foreman, inks by Foreman and Dan Green, coloured by Laverne Kinzerski, lettered by Jared Fletcher, and edited by Kate Stewart and Joey Cavalieri. 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 Very good. Mm. The cover is of Buddy Baker, topless, with what looks like tattoos all over his body, and red vines or veins running into him, stood towering above animals. It also had a red variant, a grey variant, and a white variant. Lots of variants again. Mm. Mm. Uh, issue one, there's a bunch of animals at the bottom, which look very Kevin Maguire to me. 
Uh, exceptionally well-drawn animals, yeah. I have to say. Uh, but towering above them, as Michael said, is a man bleeding from his eyes, which I always just find really gross. <laughs> it's just, you know, there are little things that set you off. Yeah. Bleeding from your eyes is the one with me. It's actually, oh, it just goes through me. Um, the red veins are in from his hands to hover above his head. It's also signed by Jeff Lemire, mm-hmm. which is pretty damn cool. It is. Where did you get this signed? Uh, Thoughtball. Right. Is that when he told you about the Swamp Thing yeah. Animal Man impending crossover? Yes. Right. That's it. It, it was quite cool talking to me to him as well because I got him to sign that and what and then uh, he saw a sketchbook in my hand and whipped it off me and said, "I'll draw something for you." And did a quick sketch of Antler Boy from Sweet Tooth. That's nice. I've never read it, so I don't. He didn't charge you anything, did he? No. Nope. What a nice man. <laughs> okay. What's this issue about, Michael? Buddy Baker reads an interview between him and journalist Jeff Lemire. Is, is that who it's from? Is yeah. it actually Jeff Lemire? It says someone. It says illustration by Travel Foreman. Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I completely missed that. Oh well done. Whilst his wife Ellen cooks dinner, his daughter Maxine rushes in and nags for a new pet dog before his son Cliff says that someone's holding the floor of the hospital hostage. Buddy grabs a clean costume and flies off to the hospital to relive his glory days. When he reaches the hospital, Detective Crenshaw tells him that the gunman is at the children's ward demanding to have his daughter back after she died last week from cancer. Buddy enters the ward and tries to calm the man down, but he's shot. Buddy enters the morphogenic field and grabs the strength of an elephant, the reflexes of a fly, and the speed of a cheetah from the birth of a dog and subdues the man. Crenshaw goes to speak to Buddy in his shot to see the blood streaming from Buddy's eyes. The doctor checks up on him but sees that there's no source of blood and nothing is wrong with him. Buddy then heads up and goes to sleep. He dreams, and in his dream Cliff is running from Maxine. He drags Buddy to go with him so that he can get away. Confused Buddy says where is Ellen, and that Maxine wouldn't do anything bad. Cliff says what Maxine did to Ellen was the worst part, and he turns around to reveal the ripped open stomach and dies in Buddy's arms. He turns to see Maxine in an animal man costume next to her now living giant stuffed dog. She tells them that they have to escape from the bad things that dress as men, the hunters. Maxine and the dog enter a pool of blood to hide, but Barry's reduced to just his nervous system and sees the hunters. The rot and the red, the true fathers of Maxine. Buddy wakes up in an empty bed and rushes downstairs to see Maxine in the garden, surrounded by dead animals. She only wanted a pet for her own. Yeah, it was a good ending, that. Yeah. I quite like that. Uh, page one. You open this comic book to reveal that page one is a huge text piece, which is not an unpleasant shock. No. It was actually quite nice to have a text page, which was awesome. This is actually part of the story. An interview with Buddy Barker, a.k.a. Animal Man, in the pages of very hip and trendy, dating myself though, newspaper called The Believer. It reveals that Buddy is essentially a retired superhero and now political activist and actor, of all things. Wonder Man was the last superhero I recall. He was an actor. Well, he was a um, stuntman, I think. What, Wonder Man? No, Buddy. So was Wonder Man. Was he? I'm sure he was an actor and stuntman. Oh, okay. Yeah, in the Roger Stone Avengers comics I'm currently reading, I'm sure he says he's a stuntman now. You would have thought that superheroes would make yeah, the best he's, stuntman. Yeah, he's indestructible, isn't he? <laughs> so, I quite like this introduction. It's a good way of bringing up the reader to speed hmm. with the character and his current status quo without having to deal with tons of exposition within the story itself. After this one page, you pretty much know who Buddy Baker is and what he's all about from this one page. And it does it's not something you could do with everything, but it really fits in well with this story. Yeah. It's really good. I was very impressed with that. Um, the interview on the first page is between Buddy and Jeff Lemire with illustration by Charles Foreman. Um, it's another way Buddy has broken the fourth wall and spoken to another of his writers. Oh, yeah, very good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't twig that at all. 
Yes, very good. Excellent. Well put. The Evolve or Die t-shirt that's mentioned yeah. uh, will be in a later issue. And thanks to a graffiti design, is an actual t-shirt. And the move that Buddy stars in will be the spotlight of issue six. All right, so he does finally come out then. He's a low-budget independent well, not movie. not all of it. Hmm. Well, no, what do you mean, not all of it? Because it plays into the story again. Oh, right. It, it does it, and then it kind of stops, and it says low battery, and then Cliff says, oh, crap. Well, like, what are you doing? The battery runs yeah. out on our recorder. <laughs> we should leave one of them in for the lovely people at home when next time that happens. I'll just end the episode, though. <laughs> the battery ran out. Sorry, dudes. <laughs> um, the opening couple of pages of this are exactly as I remember Animal Man from the Morrison run. Um, I mentioned I read the Morrison stuff, continued into Delano, but I kind of went off it mm. when Delano was on it as I felt it got a bit too preacher. Now, granted... The title character has political and activist leaning, so I expect a little treatise occasionally on animal rights, with which I have no problem. But I do object when writers start preaching their single point of view as being the only point of view, and if you don't agree with them, then you're wrong. And it felt like Animal Man went down that route. When the boot was at its best, as here, was when the family dynamics were central to the relationships in the story. And it's nice to see all the family back here. Uh, but under the heading, nothing ever changes. Buddy's son, Cliff, still has terrible hair. Yeah. Now, back in the 90s, this was forgivable. It's it's kind not of so not so now. forgivable now, isn't I'm it? I'm told you there's a great bit in a later issue with John Constantine. And well, in one of these, in one of these five, someone takes the mick out of his hair. Yeah. Which is quite funny. I like the bit with um, the John Constantine. It's like the trench coat went out of date in the 80s, and John turns around and says, yes, so did the mullet. Yes. Yeah, um, the, the, you'd think that they would... Uh... There's a bit in this as well where they mention the two dogs. Yeah. Um, what was it, Skipper and TC? Yeah. Yeah, um, that they died, and they died in the Grant Morrison room. Did they? Mm-hmm. So there is... Con- so this is carrying on from it, it might the new be. 52. It might not be. Because this is a very different... Anim- it's not different, but... This could follow directly on from Grant Morrison's last issue. No, everything in that first page is similar but different to everything we know about Buddha. What's different? He, well, he wasn't an actor. Yeah, well, what you could do then is you have the last issue Grant Morrison wrote, you yeah. put a caption at the top of the page, of page two of this, mm-hmm. five years later. Okay. And you're picking the story up directly after Grant Morrison left off. Except... Don't about what Milligan and Delano Yeah, did. and just go straight on. The only difference to that is Maxine is still four. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't quite know how that would work in my scenario. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whatever. She doesn't seem like four in this one. No, she's far too smart, isn't she? Yes. Yeah. Um, Saver, the big splash page of Iron Man's new costume, because he never wears it again after this issue. What, even after this story arc? Even after, he's, he's topless. Yeah, he's, all the his way costume gets ripped yeah. at some point, doesn't it? So he does only wear his pants and for the rest of the story. in a later issue, he, he's naked for an issue. Oh, good. I'm, I'm so delighted to and see Animal Man penis. In, in, um... He then gets, you, you don't see anything. Good. Because he has go uh, I had enough of that with little Jimmy's wang oh. when we talked about Killing Joke. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, he has goat legs. Does and, he really? And, and then he puts pants <laughs> Is that on. what it's called? And then in the issue of Swamp Thing, <laughs> he then has full clothes. Uh, I've, been, I've heard it being called a baby's out, <laughs> but I've never heard it being called goat likes. <laughs> oh, dear. I, I did like 
the, the full page splash of Buddy reaching out with his powers to find an animal that could protect him from the gunshot when he gets to the hospital where there's a kidnapping going on. I loved that page. It was very manimal. Mm. And uh, I love the bit where you did the synopsis and he, he finds out which animal to tap into to protect him from a bullet shot. Yeah. And uh, he thinks about an elephant. And I just flash back to so when I was a kid, there was this cartoon. Cannot for the life of me remember what it's called. But there was a guy in it who could do this. And he would go, Size of an elephant! And he would turn into an elephant. Okay. <laughs> and he did stuff like that. Flight of an eagle! And he would turn into an eagle. I cannot for the life of me remember what that cartoon was called. Quite cool. But it was, it was really good. All three were super powered beings of some description. Mm. It was good. By contrast, I mentioned on the cover that I loathe people bleeding from their eyes, so the next page made me go, oh, because yeah. it's a three-quarter page splash of Buddy bleeding from his eyeballs. And his ears. Yeah, his yeah, but the ears don't bother me so much as the eyes. Yeah. Like watching Casino Royale, when the guy bleeds from his eye, oh, yeah. that always makes me go, oh, yeah. And it's not a little bit of blood from his eyes. It's his eyes are red. Yeah, his eyes are bleeding. His eyeballs are bleeding. It's it's a bit gross. I do like on the next page where the doctor's analysing it, and he's got that thing stuck down his ear. Mm. And Buddy's face is, can we just get on with this? Yeah, fine. Which is really good. He goes home, as you mentioned in the synopsis, and he can't sleep. So he reaches out before he has the dream sequence for the napping ability of a cat. Yeah. Do you know there are times when I want the napping ability of a cat? Mm. That would be a really cool power to have. And then he has the rather surrealistic dream sequence that you mentioned, the synopsis. Yeah. Michael didn't make a mess of synopsizing that. It's a dream sequence, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But there's obviously lots of portents hmm. for what is to come in the story. The scary eyes are in Yeah, the little scary eyes in the thing. And uh, I did like that it's in black and white, which mm-hmm. does highlight just, just how good the artwork is. But there's blood and somebody's innards falling out that is the only colour, which is a bit like Schindler's List with the girl in the red coat, isn't it? Yeah. Um, which does make it as creepy as hell. It's very good. Yeah. Very effective three-page sequence. Um, the dream sequence is really done and reflects the tone of the book. Cliff's guts hanging out of him really isn't the worst thing we'll see in the series, No, though. no, we'll get lots of face peeling and stuff as we go along, yeah. won't we? I do like the design of the hunters, though. Yeah. It's all. It, it's an exceptionally well-handled dream sequence. Yeah. Um, it's an extreme, extremely good first issue. The superheroic stuff's a bit mundane, isn't it? Because mm. it's quite easy to imagine Superman in the same situation and saying exactly the same things. But that, again, plays into the point of the story. Is Animal Man even needed anymore? But there's no denying that Animal Man has an excellent power set. Uh, and this is a really intriguing issue and a good setup for the next um, next series of events that will follow over the next four issues. It was really good. I enjoyed this one. Mm-hmm. Good pick. We'll see if I continue to enjoy it. Uh, Troutman Foreman's art is very good in this issue. Yeah, the artwork was really good in this one. It's a bit different from other artists. It's a bit strange. And he tends to draw people a bit weird, especially the gunman in the hospital. Yes. It's not a rags, I can't draw people's faces without them looking retarded, but <laughs> I, I have proven in other series that I'm a very talented artist morales. <laughs> but more of a more creepy look yeah. to them. Which fits the tone of the book as well. Well, yeah, well, it's a horror book, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Issue two, young Michael. The cover for issue two shows a huge monster. Yes. Made up of several different animals chasing a fleeing animal man and Maxine dressed as animal girl and also had a red variant. <laughs> you know, I didn't notice you got animal man's costume on. <laughs> That's exceptional. She again. did in the dream sequence. Yeah, she, yeah she did, yeah. Animal girl, brilliant. Um, a big brain with claws and tentacles chases animal man and Maxine. 
Um, if this was Japanese, it'd be perfect. Yes, hentai. Uh, I tend to gravitate towards material that has a white background, as this can be a really effective use of the art to emphasise a certain thing, and it's very true of this cover. The large creature is covering the top three quarters of the page, leading your eyes down the page towards the tiny figures at the bottom, and the white background doesn't detract in any way from the artwork. Again, it's another good horror comic cover, despite not being billed as a horror comic mm. anywhere. But it is, isn't it? Yeah. Essentially. The Hunt Part 2 Maps was, again, by the same people. Maxine tells Buddy that she heard the dead animals calling out to her from the place. As his eye begins to bleed and a pattern stains his chest. She says the pattern is the place. Later, Ellen tries to wash the pattern off but says it's part of his skin. And Buddy tells Cliff to go bury the animals before the owners see the open graves. Maxine tells Buddy that what's on him is a map of the red. Once they get to the red tree, then they'll go away. She says that they have to get there before the hunters do, and they'll kill it. And once it does, everything will die. Suddenly, they hear Cliff shouting for them outside. And when they reach him, they see that he's in the hands of a very angry neighbour. Buddy goes to confront him, but Maxine changes his hand into a claw. Ellen comes Maxine down, and so she turns his hand back to normal, and he runs off saying he'll call the police. Buddy decides to follow Maxine and head to the red, whilst Ellen and Cliff stay at home and wait for the police. They say goodbye, and Maxine tells him to follow the birds. At the San Diego Zoo, all the animals are going crazy before opening time. Three of the workers see that all the hippos have gone into labour, even though the zoo doesn't have any male hippos. When they look down into the enclosure, they can see the three hippos with huge stomachs lying in the bloody water. Buddy and Maxine follow animals along the path until they reach the dying red tree and get sucked into the red. Meanwhile, the San Diego Zoo is closed down due to the hunters being born from the hippos and eating the workers. <laughs> yes, this story is as wacky as Michael makes it sound. Uh-huh. It's actually a pretty good synopsis. Because yeah. I, I was reading these. Well, I wouldn't have picked these. Obviously, these are all your choice. Yes. But I was reading these going, I wouldn't want to be synopsizing this. <laughs> so, fair play, you've done a pretty decent job there. Um, page one has a very interesting panel layout, which is really effective in selling this scene of horror. You've got... It's a full-page splash. Buddy looks a bit weird because he's just wearing shorts, but he's all shaded, Mm. so he looks a bit strange. Um, Ellen and Cliff are being held back by him, while Maxine is playing with dead skeletons that are walking around. And decaying animals, too. Yeah, and and animals that haven't quite finished decaying yet. Mm. There are no flies buzzing around on this one, though. But later on, yeah. there will be a guy that gives it away because he's got flies buzzing around him. Mm. So I was a bit confused by that. And maybe there just aren't any flies out at night Maybe in this particular area. Where did they live? Or is it not mentioned? I'm assuming near San Diego. But I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, I do like that the first thing Cliff thinks to do on page two yeah. is run off and get his phone so he can photograph it and show all his friends, which... It's a pretty accurate reflection on teenagers today, isn't it? Yeah. First thing to do, go for the phone. He's only like seven in this as well. See, I, I would have pegged them at much older than the dialogue tells us. Yeah. I'd have pegged him at least 14 and her at least 10. Mm. But the dialogue definitely says she's only four. Yeah. And I don't think it tells us how old Cliff is, does it? I'm not So sure. would he be about six or seven? Probably, yeah. So, no, see, I didn't... The art is very good, but it doesn't seem to draw them as the ages that they're told they Especially are. Especially what she says as well. Yeah, she's she's much smarter than you would expect a four-year-old to be. Hmm. Um, I'd, see, I, I would have been inclined to make them a bit older, to be honest with you. I think that would have worked better. Well, how old were they in Morrison's run? Four and seven, I think. Were they? Hmm. See, I always got that Cliff was much older than that. 
Mm. I always got that he was about 12. Yeah. yeah. Okay, fair enough. Uh, page three, we've got bleeding from his eyeballs again. Yeah. Which makes me so happy. I think this is the last of it. Is it? Yes. Mm, good. Um, page four, Maxine feeding the skeletal dinosaur milk and it dripping all over the table. Yeah. It was hysterically funny. Why is he called Mr. Pickles? Why not? Was that just the name that came to her? Apparently. All right, I do like a sulky face, though. Yeah, when he uh, he tells her to stop um, stop feeding the milk. Yeah. It is a very good depiction of a little girl's sulky <laughs> yeah, face. Yeah, yeah. Of which we are well aware. Well aware. Aren't we? Yeah. Uh, the, a lot of this issue looks like it's gone straight from pencils to colour. Does that? Page five at the bottom there. Right. Oh, I see what you mean, yeah. Um, 12 and 18 and 19 especially. Right, okay. Do you think that was a time-saving exercise? Because as sure. we will get on, Travel Foreman doesn't finish the artwork in his five-issue story out, does he? That, and he, he swaps it up sometimes. Sometimes he inks it. Sometimes it doesn't say if there's an inker. Sometimes there is an inker. Right. Okay, fair enough. The book becomes Swamp Thing's next-door neighbour here. with the That's an excellent way of describing it. Yeah. It's next-door neighbour. Brilliant. Because it's not a crossover. Yet. Yet, obviously. But it's not kind of running concurrently... No. But it kind of is. Mm -hmm. And it's not really talking about exactly the same thing, but it kind of is. Yeah. Well done. I like that. Next door neighbour. Very good. (laughs) Uh, With the mentioning of the red, which we heard of in Swamp Thing, Um, only we would have heard of it first here. Right. Um, The red, created by Delano, had Buddy Baker as its animal avatar. Which follows into this, because now it wants Maxine as its avatar. Yes. Doesn't it? Right, I see. It all makes some kind of sense at the time. Uh, page seven. The scene where the, the nosy neighbour comes along. Uh, there's an absolutely fantastic shot in the middle of the page of Maxine turning the nosy neighbour's hand into, like, a dinosaur hand or an eagle's claw. It's like a chicken foot. Yeah, or a chicken foot, yeah. Um, and he screams. And the artwork is brilliant because he's holding a torch. The lighting and the colouring of the torch makes it look so you can see right down his throat which is really really good isn't it mm. you can even see he's got his tonsils he's yeah. had his tonsils removed which I thought was quite good it's a very good piece of art that the art in the whole thing's quite good there are some wonky places there are like on the very next page um, Ellen's eyes Maxine's a cross-eyed yeah go a bit cross-eyed but yeah it, the art for the most part is pretty damn good yeah uh, Buddy's attempt at humour made me giggle a bit on page 9 what does he say? But Cliff says they're badass. Where it's like, no one's taken anybody away, I'll take care of this. But how? Look at you. But Cliff says he's a badass. Oh, his tattoos have suddenly appeared all over him. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Um, um, cool. I, I remember, I think it's more funnier, because I remember multiple comics that had the word ass censored. Yeah, well, when we did, I can't remember what it Final was that Crisis, we did. Yeah, it was inconsistently censored. Yeah. Which made no sense whatsoever, did it? Mm-hmm. So, yeah... This is very definitely a mature reader's vertigo book, though, isn't it? It is. This isn't a standard superhero title. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they've not made this, at the very least, PG-13, I yeah. suppose. It's something you'd give to it's, fans it's, who don't want to read about superheroes. Yeah, it's and it's teen plus. Yeah, it is aiming at that market of people who don't like superhero books, which is fine. Yeah. We would like to get more of those in, because I, I do like it when there's a wide range of material to read. Buddy still calls Maxine Little Wing on page 12 which he used to do throughout the Morrison run didn't he yeah or was that the Delano run I don't know he used to call a little wing back in the 90s when I read it which is um, 
a Jimi Hendrix song, I think. Uh, the zoo workers already look a bit creepy. You all like Grant Morrison? Before the hunters, especially the one in the middle with the moustache. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> he looks very strange. And he's got huge ears. Mm. He's got, uh, yeah. I was going to say something insulting about Will Smith, but I won't. Because <laughs> I'm sure he's a lovely guy, and I have no desire to insult him. Fresh Prince of Bella and all that. Now here's a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. We're not joining in with the Fresh Prince of Bella theme tune. See, I can never do every, Everyone, all of my friends all really like it. How do all of your friends know the Fresh I, Prince of Bella theme tune given it went off the air before you were born? How do I know the Fresh Prince of Bella? Well, I don't know the words. There you go. They're, they're so all, you don't know it. See, it's on like Viva every night. Is it? Is it on one of the channels? Yeah, it is, but they all, they're all singing to the words and I don't know any of them. There was one with William Shatner in. Was there? Yeah. That sounds awful. No, it was quite good. Okay. Anyway. We're not a Fresh Prince of Bel Air podcast. No. <laughs> uh, page 14, I, I would imagine that there is. Um, page 14, they made the rhino swell up. And God, that's gross, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's like it's made the bellies extended or distended. And they're all sat there, like writhing in pain in the animal exclosure. It's, it's, it's not very pleasant at all. And uh, page 18 and 19, we get a nice double page spread. Of Buddy and Maxine going into the red, it's it's very Escher. Yes, that's that's what I was looking for. Um, why does Maxine not change in the same way that Buddy does? Well, because I'm thinking she says she's been there before in a, in a later issue, right? Right. So maybe Buddy doesn't have the experience and so has fallen about. Right. See, and then we see the three zoologists that you mentioned earlier on, and now that they're dead. Covered in flies. They're covered in flies. So why wasn't all the animals that Maxine had covered in flies earlier? Don't know. Inconsistency. <laughs> um, again, it was a really good follow-up. I quite liked it. Uh, there's a lot more plot here than last year, which set up the characters, and the the actual story gets started in this issue. Whereas here, the characters are introduced. It's out of the way, so the story gets rolling. It's an interesting companion piece to Swamp Thing. Next door neighbour. Mm. I like that. <laughs> uh, very. Very many thematic similarities, aren't there? Yeah. Between the two books, which I noticed when we were reading them. Not enough that you can't read them separately. Yeah. I didn't think. But it is better when you read them together. It is one of those things that I was reading this and going, oh, right. The red, the green, the rot. Hmm. Very good. Yeah, it is better when you read them together, though. Right. Okay. Very good. The cover for issue three shows Buddy, top plus yet again. Yeah, because we want to see that. We do, in the form of several different animals. Yeah, it's another freaky deaky cover. Uh, Buddy looks like he's trapped between morphing between different animals. He's got tusks and wings and a lion's paw and fly eyes. Um, Yeah, and two other arms. Yeah, what are those two other arms? What's all that about? Don't know. It's very icky, isn't it? Maybe he wants to be Peter Parker. Maybe he does, yeah, maybe he's spider about 100. Totems, part three of The Hunt, was written by Lemie with art by Foreman, called the by Kondinsky, letter by Fletcher and edited by Stuart Cavalieri. Yeah, okay. Buddy and Maxine continue to fall deeper into the red until they find themselves at the centre in front of huge totems of the red. The hunters stand outside the Baker residence but sense that the avatar is not there. Two hunters go to the red while the other one stays to kill Ellen. Back in the red, Maxine tells Buddy that she comes to the red all the time in her dreams and the totems tell him that he is not one of them. He is not the animal avatar that he thought he was. Instead, his role for the red was to further and protect Maxine, the next red totem, and prepare her for war. As the two hunters enter the red, the other one attacks the baker's house. The dead pets attack the hunter which buys Ellen and Cliff enough time to reach the car and escape. 
but he fights the hunters whilst Maxine is protected by the totems. Ellen calls Detective Crenshaw from the hotel payphone and he says he'll help her. On the way there, Crenshaw is eaten by the hunter and, using his skin to disguise himself, the hunter meets Ellen whilst Buddy is beaten by the other two hunters. Uh, again, the splash page is really good of Maxine and uh, Buddy entering the red again. Buddy's got all his innards falling out and his brain seems to have swelled up to be the size of a planet. Yeah. And Maxine's just like, hey, this is really cool. Well, it's funny to see Buddy falling apart, but Maxine staying the same because she has more control from being than before. Is that what it is? I'm assuming so. We don't actually know. Yeah, because you get another splash page on page two that's really cool. And then there's a two-page <laughs> splash that's really cool because it does a lot of cool here. The second page, splash page, is just weird. All of Buddy's skin's been peeled off to reveal all his muscles and skin tone and stuff. But his eyeballs and his head... Are out of his mouth, which yeah, is huge. And, and I, I didn't understand that, to be honest with you. Yeah. It's very surrealistic and it's fun. As they plunge into the red travel form and uses the opportunity to indulge his surrealistic side as Maxine remains relatively normal whilst Buddy's body contorts and twists, turning inside out before arriving in the land of the animal men. Um, it's all very reminiscent of early 90s Vertigo books, isn't it? But without the inerrant pretension of some of the titles of that era. Whilst I've mentioned I liked a lot of Vertigo books at the time, I don't really think many of them have aged particularly well. Sandman, which didn't start life as a Vertigo book, I know, and Preacher still seem to be the titles that are best remembered, mainly because they had clean stories to tell, and even Sandman bordered on tedium occasionally. Skirting the edge between Vertigo and superhero books is always dangerous territory, and I do really think an awful lot of the time it doesn't work. Mm. It's something that may be best kept separate. Here, so far, it's working very well, perhaps because Swamp likes one thing. It's not a traditional superhero book, is it? No. There, there isn't much superhero elements to no, it. No, apart from the opening bit where he, he rescues the, uh, the yeah. people in the hospital. That's it. Yeah, we're not going to get any saving people from falling off buildings in there, so... Mm. Uh, all the red totems look really cool, and some of them are quite creepy as well. Yeah. But it's fun seeing which animals they are and how big they are. And yeah, I didn't pretend to understand a lot of that. What? I just accept. All right, they're in the red now. Yeah. All right, fair enough. There's, uh, later on, the red's quite different because um, apparently this is like where all these totems are. It's a big room. Right. And there's a bit later on where he's on this ocean with this goat guy. Yeah. And goat guy. Yeah. <laughs> is that like the Bill Hicks sketch? <laughs> goat, I'm boy goat, is boy. goat boy is pleased. Goat boy is pleased. Um. Yeah, well, Straczynski would toy with the idea of totemic reasons for Spider-Man's powers, wouldn't he? Yeah. In a rather pointless addition to his origin that, by and large, seems to be known by other I writers. Was really cool, though. At the time. Just because it was different. And other people just kind of ignored that. Yeah. Sometimes an accident's just an accident. Mm. Uh, this seems to be playing with the same idea, but it's yes. Maxine who's the totemic avatar and Buddy merely her protector. Is this playing with established Animal Man law? Well, what we knew... What was already established was that Buddy was the Red Avatar, but here we're told that he was lied to. Oh right, so, so everything he, you know is wrong. It's news to him as well. All oh, right, it's cool seeing Hal Jordan there as well. Yes, Hal Jordan makes a little cameo appearance. Yeah, I got my powers from an alien spacecraft. Yeah, because it crash landed and he got some of the radiation. Right. Yeah, I mean we've mentioned a couple of times Maxine's very tall and intelligent for a four-year-old. Slaughterhouse Valley Six. 
the, um, the game that Cliff plays looks really cruel and something Adam would play. Well, do you see the actual game? Oh, right, yeah, that panel. It, yeah, it does look like zombie killing thing, doesn't it? it? Nazi zombies, yeah. Yeah, yeah, your brother would be all over that, wouldn't he? The creatures that attack Ellen is really gross. Yeah. it's Is it the three zoo people? Yeah. Right. There's some lovely little human touches amongst all the grossness. Ellen tasks Cliff for swearing and laments that she ever married a superhero. Which was actually, there was lots of little bits in it, little lines that were really funny. Yeah. While you're reading it, there was a very undercurrent of black humour going uh, through the whole thing. As they're running along, they phone the policeman, Detective Crenshaw. And did you instantly get a bad vibe off this bit? Well, no, because he's at the beginning. Yes, he is, but the, we've watched too many films where they phone the one guy that they can trust. And it's Only for it to turn out that they can't trust him. Yes. Now, th- that isn't actually what happens, but it is actually what happens. Yeah. Now, it's not the cop's fault. He's taken over by one of the minions of the Red. The Rot. The Rot. I'm mixing up my Rot and my Red. Yeah. So, it's not his fault, but he does turn out to be the bad guy. And he's got the flies buzzing around him. Mm. <coughs> which surely would make Cliff go, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. But he doesn't know. He'd not to... smell a bit as well. And he'd probably smell a bit, yeah. Again, it was a good issue. I don't quite get what animals Buddy is tapping into in the Red. But the art's suitably gross, whilst not forgetting that it's telling the story. And he keeps changing as well. Yeah, and he, he does keep going through morphing. Um, said story's pottering along quite well. Like I said, there's an undercurrent of dark humour to the dialogue, which is always appreciated. I quite enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. It was very good. Issue four. The cover for issue four is a close for Buddy's face. Half man, half monster. Yeah, I got a real incredible TV show vibe from this cover. Um, while it was Ditko who popularised the half-face, mm. the half-face secret idea and the half-face yeah. normal like he used to do with Spider-Man, the whole TV show made it a pop culture icon because they included it in the opening titles every week. This is a slightly more horrific version yeah. of that, isn't it? Buddy Baker is believed to be dead. <laughs> now he's a monster. Now he's a monster. And he must let the world think that he is dead. Or something. The rot part four of The Hunt was by all the same people but Jeff Hewitt helped out with the inks. The hunter, disguised as Crenshaw, drives Ellen and Cliff to her mum's farm in Sacramento. Ellen and Buddy agreed that that's where they'll meet if anything ever went wrong. In the Red, the hunters defeat Buddy but Maxine banishes them from the Red. She uses her control over the Red to patch Buddy back up. The totems show Buddy the origin of the hunters, three avatars of the Red who chose to become agents of the Rot in order to control Maxine and thus control the Red. Buddy decides to head back to the real world to protect Ellen and Cliff from the Hunters, and a cat totem decides to go with them to protect Maxine. As Ellen talks to her mum, she sees Crenshaw's car boot open with Cliff and Crenshaw missing. The Hunter drags Crenshaw and Cliff into the forest next to the farm and stops next to a lake and eats Crenshaw. Ellen runs to the barn and grabs a shotgun. As Buddy reaches home and sees it's trashed, Ellen finds the Hunters eating the remnants of Crenshaw. Uh, page one. Would Cliff and Ellen not notice Buddy's cop friend is surrounded by flies at this point now that they're in a car with him? <laughs> Maybe and the, the flies are in the car with him. Maybe the windows are open and it's very hot. It's entirely possible, yes, I suppose. I like the panel layout on page two with the panel at the top and the bottom of the page, but then it's split into four with these bars here. Yeah, I like that you can see that Crenshaw's body's in the boot of the car. Yeah. Because of the panel. It's a good piece of artwork, that. I like that. It's very well done. Uh, page four. 
Maxine making the creatures explode is ooky. Because mm. it's essentially just a big panel of red. What the hell's going on with Buddy's body? I mean, especially since he's lost his shoes. Yeah, well. and it's, it's, now he's just got a big fat torso. Yeah. But a tiny little belly. And no her. And no her. And what's going on with his arms? Is any of this explained? He's, he's in, in the rock. Red, even. So that's the catch-all explanation for yes. it? Yes. Okay, for or, it. Or the, the best explanation to it is travel forming. Alright, fair enough. Sometimes yeah. that's the way it is, is the only explanation you're going to get. Yes. Fair enough. Um, a lot of the pages look dirty underneath the colours, as though the pencils weren't rubbed out before going to inks. You, but you like that, though, don't you? You always like it when the pencils show through. Sometimes, yeah, but there's bits where it's, say, here, it mm. just looks dirty, though. Yeah. I think it fits in with the artwork, though, doesn't it? Okay. It doesn't detract from it. No. In any way, or at least I didn't think it did. Um, when you're reading these things and you're looking at the artwork, sometimes little things stick out for no readily apparent reason. Um, here's one such example. Panel 2 of page 6. I was dead impressed that Travel Foreman drew a full interior dashboard on the car. <laughs> I have no idea why I spotted that or why I liked it so much. But I just did. I like, look, he's drawn the radio and the, yeah. the iPod dock. And there's the keys and the, the stick shift. So he's obviously not driving. He's obviously on an automatic. Yeah. It was great. I just really like that little artistic touch. Because, let's face it, they could have left that blank. No one would have cared. Mm. I just, I, I don't know why I like Going that. the extra mile. Yeah, going that extra mile. Also on this page... One of the disadvantages of being a superhero, and it being commonly known, mm-hmm. the in-laws have another reason to hate you. <laughs> I thought that was quite good. Uh, page seven, the facial reactions of the cop in the background. Yeah. And Cliff being too wrapped up in his phone to notice. Is that subtle social commentary? It is. Of teenagers are just too wrapped up in the phones nowadays to know what's going on around them. Probably. Okay, fair enough. Crenshaw's face on the bottom of page seven though, is really scary. Yeah, it is really, yeah. Black eyes and tentacles coming out of his coming mouth. Coming out of his mouth. Um, all of Foreman's depictions of the rot people are quite scary. Yeah. He does a really good job with it. I was quite impressed. On page eight, Maxine fixes Buddy. I don't quite know how. She has control she has over control the red. She has control over the red and the flesh. And you control the flesh is, again, the only explanation that we're given. Well, the red is... Well, the green is plants. Yeah. The red is living animals things. and people yeah right so okay so Maxine fixes him after he turns into a a hulk by rubbing him like clay yeah essentially by massaging him back to normal I did like that she fixed him but it took another couple of panels it's all the panels of the next page that Trans- he actually turn back returns to normal. to normal yeah it isn't just an instant thing which I quite like um page 10 and 11 is another call over to Swamp thing but possibly unintentional there's a two page splash here where we get the necessary plot exposition, because as we've established before, it's plot exposition, it's got to go somewhere, Mm -hmm. Um, all about the red. But it's laid out exactly the same way as the same sequence in Swamp Thing, where they talked about the green, with the unusual panel layout on the two-page spread. Do you think that was coincidental? Yeah, it might have been. Or do you just think they've coordinated this quite well? Well, it is very similar. Yeah, who drew the Swamp Thing one? Right, so maybe maybe they've collaborated in, well, how are you going to do this? How are you going to tell this bit? Yeah. So maybe they've they've swapped a few notes. I've shown you the cover for issues 12 or something in Almanac. Yeah, the ones that were out this week. Yannick Paquette did a quick sketch and showed uh, Steve Pugh what they'd each draw for the cover and they did a big 
thing of it. Right, and does it join together? Yeah. All oh, right. The two-page spread of the hunt's origin is similar to some of the exposition in Swamp Thing. Again, showing the, hey, we're next-door neighbours. Yeah, I do like that for us. Yeah. Oh, that's very good, though. Page 13, we actually get a direct call-out to Alec Holland. Yep. Then there'll be more of them. In fact, there's more mentions of Swamp Thing in Owl Man than there is of Animal Man in Swamp Thing. Right, okay. If I remember correctly, you can read um, Swamp Thing. Yeah, Swamp Thing. No mentions of... Swamp Thing's made no reference to Animal Man. Yes, whereas reading this, it's more clear that they're similar. Right, okay. Page 17. The cat. Yeah. The cat likes its own name and is quite precious. It's well established, I think, that cats just run the world Mm. and they just let us think. Yeah. That we're running it. Well, there's that Sandman story. Dream of a Thousand Cats. Yeah. Which is very good. Cats ruled it. Yeah. I do like Socks, the cat. What does he say his name is? Oh, that's Slater a bit. He actually gives his own name, doesn't he? And uh, Maxine says, but I prefer Socks. Red Ignatius. Yeah. He says his name is, but I prefer Socks. (laughs) Your mum used to have a cat called Socks when she was little. Well, Socks is quite an important character later in the series. And I do like the bit where he joins Buddy sniffing the floor. Yeah. I like the cat a great deal, to be honest, in the batter half of this. Yeah. I thought the cat was lovely. So, apparently, according to Ellen's mum's house decorations, it's Christmas. Why? Santa and a snowman. Yeah, but they've not got any other decorations. Well, I suppose, especially since this is, like, two days since it started in September. Yeah. Well, for us, it would have been December when this issue was released. Right, okay, fair enough. So maybe it is taking place around Christmas time. Maybe. Alright, fair enough. Again, they're building the tension well. I'm not fond of the fact that there are only 20 page stories and every other page seems to be an advert. Yeah. Um, We're spurred any more time in the red or the rot than necessary so we don't get two or three issues here. Like we did in Swamp Thing. Mm. Swamp Thing did feel a bit... Yeah, can can we get on with it now? Yeah. There are some lovely little character beats again with Maxine and the cat. And there's some lovely little horror moments as well with Cliff and Ellen. It's all very effectively drawn. It's all very effectively written. It's a bit repetitious, really, <laughs> to be honest with you. But, again, it's 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 worthy How of the... Well, I'm just saying the same things. All oh, right. <laughs> basically. So the story isn't... No, no, the story... I'm enjoying the story, but basically the only problem with it is maybe we should have looked at this as a Gestalt entity again. Maybe. As a whole thing, instead of just saying the same things over and over. Yeah. But, uh, oh, yeah, we're into cover for issue five. Yeah. The cover <laughs> for issue five <laughs> is of a zombie Maxine eating the face off Buddy. Mm. It's pretty gross. It's very gross. It's icky. And it's not something you'd want to see on the... Uh, the news rock no I don't know I think that would attract your attention would it yeah I think so Duh, you'd have another thousand mums going on about it yeah you, you probably would have somebody belly aching about it but thankfully we're beneath their notice it is a cool cover it is it's for, a very good a vertigo book as well yeah but it's not really a vertigo book is it but it it would, would be an excellent cover for a vertigo book it's a good cover as it is um Maxine looks like she's turned into a turtle <laughs> it's a backpack she's friends with Jimmy Olsen yes <laughs> It's a backpack, but it does look like a shell. And she's ripped off his face. Yeah. I want to take his face off. And eat it. And eat it. (laughs) That line wasn't in the film, was it? (laughs) No. No. It is a very good cover. It has to be said. It's a great cover. Mm. It is the kind of cover that would have got it banned in the 1980s if it was the cover of Cannibal Holocaust 3. Or Or a statue was in power. Uh, Both. (laughs) 
Fury's Chain, the conclusion of The Hunt, was written by Lemieux with pencils and inks by Travel Foreman and Jeff Hewitt, with additional art by Steve Pugh. Colours by Kandinsky, letters by Fletcher, and edited by Stuart and Cavalieri. He could have just said all the same people. Probably could have, yeah. Uh, As Buddy flies towards the farm, Ellen shoots the hunter, but is attacked by it. Buddy is told by Ellen's mum that she went into the woods, and so he runs after her. The hunter goes to eat Ellen, but Cliff picks up the gun and shoots it in the head. It turns around and heads for him, but Buddy beats it up and tells Ellen and Cliff to run back to the farm. The hunter decided to show Buddy the rod before it kills him and fills him full of icky stuff. He sees himself as a head and organs held together by a web, and Maxine as a spider that bags his face off. Buddy breaks out of the vision and away from the hunter. Maxine senses that Buddy's in danger, so she controls ants and other animals to help him. However, the hunter uses them to get into the red, and the animals become part of the rot and attacks Buddy. He runs to the farm, and they all get into Ellen's mum's RV and drive away, chased by an army of rot animals. So if they're all being chased at the end of it, how is that the ending? It's the end of the Because it isn't, is it? It's the end of the first story, or the end of the hunt story. The next is a two-part story called Animal vs. Man. So I presume in the trade paperback that two-part story is in the same one as these five issues. I'm not sure. Like when they did the swamp thing. Maybe. I presume. The next two issues are essentially how he deals with the animals, though. Right, okay. Um, the art changes for the last issue, for the last couple of pages. For the last two pages, yeah. Yeah, and it's... Different. It's, yeah. It's not jarring, which is what I originally thought. But, but it's different. Yeah, I mean, for 17... For four pages. Yeah. Travel foreman couldn't bang out four pages, could he not? Apparently not. To meet the deadline. This is his last issue as well. Mm. Steve Pugh does have previous with Animal Man, doesn't he? Yeah. Steve Pugh drew Animal Man quite a lot during the Delano era. Yeah. Is that right? Um, page four is another one of those um, lovely little lines throughout the whole thing that made me laugh out loud. Buddy's line about, I don't like socks very much, feel free to drop him if he gets too heavy, was really funny after he just pointed out that you've got to let everybody die, buddy. Yeah. Only Maxine is important. You can die as well. And he's like, uh, drop the cat. <laughs> Um, Socks is probably one of my favourite characters and I keep giggling at him being scared of Buddy. <laughs> it is good, I like how that. Yeah. Um, I also like how Cliff falls back from the recoil of the shotgun. Mm, implying that he's not used to using one, or he's only tiny. Yeah. I think he is only tiny compared to that gun, isn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah I can't tell if the face-eating bit is creeping in the cover or not, though. Where's the face-eating bit in the book? Further on. Alright, so going on a bit further. Mm. Oh, yeah. See, oh, it's very no, creepy, it's... but it is different from the cover. I know, but it's still uber creepy Yeah, in the comic. Um, given all the horrendous things they do keep doing to Buddy in this book, how on earth does he keep turning back to normal? Instead of turning into ash. Yeah. Page 9, he's a big blimp. Yeah. Pages 10 and 11, he's a disembodied head on an internal organ spire. And then Maxine rips his face off. That's goopier than the cover. Yeah. Because that Cause really we can does, see it. Yeah, that really does look like she's just grabbed all of the skin over his forehead and tore it off up to his chin. Mm. And the fact that you can actually still see his eyeballs and the, the cavity where his nose is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, page 13, we get another laugh-out-loud moment where Maxine, Maxine's mum's incredulity that the cat talking is the least unusual thing that's happened today. It's brilliant. Yeah. Cliff says, the cat talks. And Maxine's mum goes, that is what you're surprised by. Mm. Like, everything else that's going on, the cat talking is the one that makes you go, oh. Yeah. I, I do like the bottom two panels on that page. Yeah. Where it's one split into two. Yeah. And she she leans down. Controls the ants. 
and controls all the ants through the red. Uh, and Maxine tapping into the life web and saving Buddy on page 15. Yeah, is really good. You think it's going to lead to an epic and heroic conclusion, don't you? Yeah. They do a really good fake out. And then everything goes straight to hell. To quote Captain Sheridan. Mm-hmm. Um, as we realise that that's what they wanted her to do. Yeah. And now that all the animals are free and pursuing them. I, I really enjoyed this. Yeah. I thought this was a good, good choice. Yeah. I liked that the ending was a huge con job. Yes. And they wanted Maxine to do this. And I liked that the parallel thematic storyline leads into Swamp Thing. Implying that a lot of thought had gone into this mm. development of this story. Very good. Very good choice, that man. Would you carry on reading it? Yeah, I would, actually. I'd probably wait until you've got a bunch more. Although you should have 12 issues by this weekend, shouldn't you? Yeah, and that's pretty much the jumping on bit since they're the prelude to the... Well, what's going to be in the annuals for this? Um, the annual on annuals already out. It's just have you a, got that? Yes. I've already got you that. It's a backstory on um, the red, right. the green and the rot. The Swamp Thing annual is... I may be getting this mixed up with the Issue Zero annual, but I think it's spotlighting on um, a previous meeting between Anton Arkin so and Alec Holland. So what's the Zero issue of these going to be? I don't know. Like, I, I was Swamp Thing. I'm not sure if it's the Zero issue or the annual. That's the meeting between Alec and Anton. Right. But okay. I don't know. Fair enough. Jobs are good in there. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much, Michael. You did an exceptionally good job. Thank there. you. I'm, I'm even seeing with the editing, but obviously I've not heard that yet. Yeah. Okay. Next time, back into uh, superhero territory for the new 52, as we take a look at how many issues is it? Five? Five. The first five issues of DC's new 52 Flash series. And it was good. Okay. Because we've already read it. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Drop us a line via email if you so desire or on the Facebook. Feel free to get in touch in any way you want. Mm-hmm. And we'll be out next week for more. Okay. The final week of New 52 week. Yes, it is. Okay, okay. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. says uh, the devil will make work for idle hands to do production and all opinions expressed in the show by Michael and Andrew are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously. Old episodes of the show can now be found on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libson L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com So if you're one of those people who wants to know where all our old shows are, that's where you'll find them. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money from this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday, currently at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the surname. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics that we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks, all one word, .com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.
Bird. 